Hello, and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Kendall, Senior Research Fellow in Arabic and Islamic Studies at Oxford University's Pembroke College. She's an expert on Yemen and on jihadist movements. Her article, The Jihadi Threat in the Arabian Peninsula, has just been published in a 9-11 CTC Sentinel special issue. CTC Sentinel is West Point's Combating Terrorism Center journal. Her article is a highly readable analysis, rich in insights and detail of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and its base in Yemen. Liz, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Phil. Great to be back. You know, uh, that piece you wrote uh, just knocked me out. So it, it, it's so full of, of, of chock full of analysis and information. Uh, I, I, I don't know if we'll be able to get, uh, get through it all by any stretch, but let us press on. I'm going to begin by asking you about AQAP, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. It's based in Yemen. I want to know why that is and, and how it came about. Well, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP, yes, its main base is in Yemen. Uh, actually, I should just point out that, because it's topical right now, 17 of the 19 Al-Qaeda 9-11 hijackers actually originated in the Arabian Peninsula. So, so what is it that, that makes Yemen a good base for it? I think there are some perennial elements, you know, some long-time, long-term drivers of extremism, like weak state control, uh, political instability, rampant corruption, a large youth population, and uh, and of course it's it's geography, it's topography, rugged mountains, deserts, difficult to get around, easy to melt away. But then there have also been some particular events that have helped to shape Al Qaeda and entrench it in Yemen. So I'm going to single out a few of the main ones. In tw- in 2006, there was a dramatic jailbreak, and 23 jihadis escaped from Sana'a's maximum security prison, and that injected a new lease of life into the group. And it coincided about the same time with a a crackdown on extremists in Saudi Arabia, uh, and that pushed many of them to to flee over the border into Yemen. And by 2009, then, there was a merger of al-Qaeda's Saudi and Yemeni branches, and that's what formed al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Then, of course, around about 2011, there was the uprising, the so-called Arab Spring, and Al-Qaeda took advantage of that instability to declare Islamic emirates in in parts of the south, in Abiyan and Shabwa. Um, They were short-lived. But then, of course, in 2014, there was a power grab by the northern rebels called the Houthis, and that precipitated a slide into war. That war was a real boon to militant jihad and Al-Qaeda were the ones who were able to take most advantage. They had the the deep roots in Yemen. And and the war was internationalised, of course, in 2015, when a Saudi-led coalition intervened to push back the Houthis and restore the governments. And so what happened next? It fueled sectarianism. Millions of people were displaced. There was a, a humanitarian crisis, which got even worse. Um, armed militias spread, uh, resentment was generated, especially at controversial foreign intervention and, and you know, perceived attempts to exploit Yemeni resources. And so whole new cycles of revenge were sparked. Al-Qaeda was t- able to take advantage of all of that. Now, I should just add that over the past 
four or five years, it has been successively weakened. But it hasn't disappeared. And we all know that militant jihad groups thrive in conflict zones and and in failed or, or failing states. So that's where we are now. Now, in your paper, you wrote about uh, the glory days of AQAP centered in the southern port town of Makala. That's from 2015 to 2016, before it was uh, pushed out by the UAE. And, And you said this, AQAP implemented community development projects, distributed aid, held festivals, engaged in youth outreach, and took a deliberately relaxed approach to the implementation of Sharia law. You know, a lot of our listeners will be surprised to learn that, uh, but but tactically, it was very shrewd, wasn't it? Yes, yes, it was. And I'm I'm glad you've singled out that bit, because most people just think of these groups as as killing machines, which of course they are, but but they're not only that, they they do a lot besides. And and in fact, the the, the now leader of AQAP, Khalid Batarfi, who, who was then back in 2015, Emir of uh, Hadranaut, said in an interview at the time, words to the effect of, we're we're not just an armed group that fights, we're we're part of the population and we offer the people the best we possibly can in terms of development and services. And to a large extent, they they did try to do that and they'd learnt from past mistakes. So the small emirates that they'd established in 2011, 2012, they knew that they'd gone in too hard. They alienated people. They uh, were liberal. They were they were fairly generous with their punishments. And we know from their own correspondence, their own internal correspondence, that they, in 2015, made a deliberate decision to play a longer game. I guess their thinking was, get people on side, or at least get them to broadly tolerate you, educate them in their version of so-called true Islam and, and then gradually introduce Sharia rule. So, so they had a more collaborative model and, and that worked much better in the Yemeni context than, for example, what ISIS tried to do in Yemen, bulldozing its way in, riding roughshod over local customs. And, and Al-Qaeda's emphasis, yes, it was. It was on development projects, um, hooking up electricity, um, environmental cleanups, paying doctors, fixing AC in, in schools, that kind of thing, and much less on, on the harsh punishments of Islamic law. Uh, well, that led to some criticism from Islamic states uh, who, who said, you know, what are you doing? If we were in control, we would have Islamic rule by now and you guys are just trundling along. But that allowed al-Qaeda to present themselves as, as the good guys of jihad. And they did go perhaps too far on a couple of occasions when they banned the narcotic cut and, and they blew up shrines uh, and they had to mend fences with the population again. So it was a fine line that they had to tread. And, and I think actually their strategy might well have worked. They they could easily have entrenched and continued to spread. But the United Arab Emirates and its allies did by April 2016, make a concerted effort to, to kick them out of Makala. I should say that this is much more of an agreed withdrawal and not a mil- great big military battle that led to a defeat. So they're still around. But but from about mid-2016, it has been mostly downhill. Yes, that's, um, that's interesting. Particularly when you think about uh, the Taliban and what they claim they are going to do. Um, yeah, and you're right that uh, it was essentially a deal that the Emiratis made with their uh, southern allies and the um, 
AQAP to um, depart Mukalla. That's right. That's right. Um, U.S. drone strikes in Yemen, they go back for many years uh, to the killing of the Al-Qaeda imam, the American Yemeni Anwar al-Awlaki. And you note that in 2017 alone, there are 120 drone strikes. How effective have they been in degrading AQAP? And I'll quote again from your paper. Watching colleagues being picked off by drone strikes at an alarming rate fuels suspicions, which are left to fester and grow owing to the challenges of communicating safely. Paranoia must be running deep in the ranks of AQAP. Mm. Yes, yes, it's true that they have been decimated by drone strikes, and paranoia is running deep. Uh, I, I should just mention that the, the first drone strike in Yemen was was actually in 2002 under President Bush. Uh, he They killed one of the architects of the bombing of the US warship, USS Cole, in 2000. Um, actually, they killed five others alongside this guy, so that's also part of the problem, of course, um, collateral damage. But yes, most famously, it was Anwar al-Awlaki, the Yemeni-American preacher who, who was killed by a drone strike in, in 2011. And... Drone strikes have continued apace, uh, peaking in 2017. Yes, over 120 in that year under President Trump. And, and it's quite interesting, I think, to observe how drone strikes are almost normalised now. Back in 2002, when we had that first drone strike, and again in 2011 with the guy, with Anwar al-Awlaki, who, who had American nationality, um, the reaction was noisy. There was a lot of debate about it. It was deeply controversial. And now I almost feel that we've become quite desensitised. It's it's a kind of new normal. But uh, I guess leaving morals to one side, your, your, your question is how effective have they been in degrading al-Qaeda? And I guess that's a double-edged sword. You know, on, on the one hand, obviously drone strikes do generate new cycles of revenge especially when they get it wrong, this so-called collateral damage and innocents are killed. But, but on the other hand, there's, there's no denying that al-Qaeda has been massively degraded as a result. And I, I think there are a few reasons for that, um, perhaps two or, or, or maybe three. There's, it means that there's been a constant turnover of leaders. New people are found to fill the shoes of those who've been droned, but they're increasingly not very experienced, they're less capable. There's an ever-decreasing pool of veterans from you know, the Afghan jihad in the 1980s. So, so the calibre of leaders is, is going down. And of course, it means that al-Qaeda can't run leadership courses or training programmes because they're just too vulnerable. And, and they can't communicate. So actually, they put a ban on themselves at the end of 2017, saying no internet, no mobile use. And what that means is that the suspicions fester. They all suspect each other. Who's dobbing us in? Who is it who's placing the trackers on our cars? And they can't flush it out because they can't communicate or meet properly. So it's really hard to run an organisation that's riddled with fear and suspicion. And that leads to infighting and to fragmentation. So that's where we are now. You know, they have a real spy problem, a real internal spy problem. And uh, actually, it's interesting that they've actually produced 11 videos 
dedicated to outing spies. That's just in the past seven years. Uh, it's, a, it's a really big problem for them. Actually, the last video series that they produced, Demolishing Espionage, it had four feature-length documentaries. That was between 2018 and 2020. Uh, and that remains a massive problem for them. They haven't been able to to get through that. And and the spies, I mean, they're executing people. Uh, are they always getting the right people, do you think? Or is that causing further uh, stress within the organization? Again, no hard and fast answer. But there's definitely a feeling inside Al-Qaeda that they're not always getting the right people for spying. And that actually, it might be part of the uh, of internal fighting where one faction is trying to get the better of another faction and both might have links or alliances with external parties and so there was one recent case of a really highly respected i sorry highly respected in jihadi circles that is i dialogue um abu mariam al-azdi who was executed for spying on pretty flimsy charges after an internal court hearing inside Al-Qaeda. And that precipitated a lot of discussion. It was, there was a breakaway faction of at least 18 fighters who uh, turned on the Al-Qaeda leadership because of that. So it, it, it's, it's a really tricky question. I don't think they always get the right people. And, and when they do get them, they're, they're pretty gruesome executions. Some of them have been caught on, on videos which, which, which I've watched. You've touched on ISIS in Yemen. Um, Still a threat? In short, not really. So ISIS in Yemen, there was an early surge in 2014 and 15 when ISIS benefited from Al-Qaeda defectors who had been fed up of waiting for their caliphate to be declared. But but it didn't really last. And ISIS never held territory in Yemen. By 2016, it it was holed up in, in central Yemen in a quite a rugged corner of uh, a place called Kaifa. And, and there are a few reasons for that. I guess, first of all, the, the general population was put off ISIS. It, it's indiscriminate brutality. Um, it had very poor networks in relation to Al-Qaeda. It wasn't culturally attuned like Al-Qaeda it was all Hollywood with little substance. It seemed like a foreign alien organisation. But perhaps most interestingly, ISIS fighters themselves started to fight and become alienated. We know from their internal chat and from defectors' testimonies that they found their ISIS leaders to be bossy, arrogant. They weren't up for consultation. They weren't given leave to visit their families. Um, they said that their leaders argued about girls. They did deals with drug smugglers. They were links to organised crime. They didn't know much about the Quran. Uh, that is even one quite amusing s- story where uh, where ISIS fighters got riled up because one of their own was was given eighty lashes for gobbling four cans of tuna. So you could see that you know, things things weren't really headed in a good direction for ISIS. And you know, ultimately, they were bombed. In their camps were completely bombed out by US airstrikes at the end of 2017. And when they re-emerged from the ashes of those airstrikes in 2018, it was a different kind of group that uh, was you know, reincarnated. It, 
its sole purpose seemed to be to go to war with Al-Qaeda. And there's a lot of speculation about whether it was an invention uh, by perhaps one of the actors in the war, uh, rather than a genuine um, ISIS incarnation. Might have been helped along a bit. But just bringing it up to date, last summer, just after we did our previous podcast, actually, our previous but one podcast, Bill, there was a a Houthi counter-terrorism operation to clear out the uh, central Yemeni province of uh, ISIS and al-Qaeda. And indeed, you know, ISIS did disappear. It was wiped out, pretty much. Uh, But it's unclear to what extent this was actually coordinated with the Houthis. It certainly was a bonus to the Houthis because it allowed themselves to present themselves to the US as a credible counter-terrorism partner. And that, of course, put them in a perhaps slightly better negotiating position. Let's um, let's look at Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, For Osama bin Laden, the target was always the House of Saud. What sort of ongoing threat does Al-Qaeda present to the ruling family and to the crown prince and the de facto leader, Mohammed bin Salman? Saudi Arabia is definitely still, uh, and increasingly, in fact, a high-target enemy for al-Qaeda. But uh, it's not as easy to reach as it was. Al-Qaeda has tried to seize the mantle from Islamic State as it declined and tried to stir up feelings again inside Saudi Arabia against the rulers. Uh, But I'm not sure this has been very successful. It did release, Al-Qaeda did release a series of documentaries uh, between, when was it, 2016, yeah, 2016 and 2018, on the modern history of Saudi Arabia. And it was, these documentaries told that history. They narrated it as as a story of treachery, corruption, profligacy by the House of Saud. Uh, and what was interesting was that the documentaries were narrated by Osama bin Laden's son, Hamza bin Laden. I think that was perhaps a, an attempt to, to fire up a new generation of Al-Qaeda supporters, but what, because the overall Al-Qaeda leader, the global leader, Ayman al-Zawahiri, is, is a bit of a has-been. He's, he's not very charismatic. He's sick and he keeps barking on in the same old way. But, uh, I mean, Hamza wasn't a pivotal al-Qaeda leader, not at all. He was only in his 20s. But but he did have potential to become a lightning rod, especially given his preeminent jihadi lineage. But he he was killed in a US operation uh, sometime probably in 2018 or 2019. But, you know, Al-Qaeda's ambition to target Saudi is still there. And they've tried to capitalise on, on anger amongst conservatives at Mohammed bin Salman's liberalising policies. These are things like, like locking up hardline religious scholars, like cozying up to Israel, uh, purging the school curriculum of, of potentially radicalising material. And, and, of course, more obvious things like women driving and the mingling of men and women at entertainment events. So, you know, they're, they're hard at it, criticising all of that. Um, I mean, one film that springs to mind by Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula was actually might have even backfired. They criticised Saudi Arabia for promoting women's sports. Uh, but in doing so, they, they spent a long time showcasing Saudi women's sporting achievements. 
they showed how Saudi women had had conquered Everest, competed in the Olympics, become experts at boxing, diving, horse riding, all sorts. Now, obviously, I'm not the target market, but showcasing all of that with then a sudden ending of isn't it terrible, it kind of fell a bit flat. It it actually seemed quite impressive. But uh, anyway, Saudi... Saudi, you know, has managed its threat better than Yemen. And, and, and I think that, that the fact it has civil stability, strong governance, not to mention uh, highly repressive me- measures and a sophistic- in- sophisticated intelligence apparatus, it, it, it's in much better shape than Yemen is. So no uh, imminent threat then to Mohammed bin Salman, uh, no, no threat of assassination, because in the past, of course, the ruling family has uh, suffered from attempted assassinations. Well, I don't think it's for for want of ambition on the part of Al-Qaeda, but uh, the measures that Saudi has put in place have been pretty successful. Uh, now, you know, Saudi knows it needs to remain vigilant. It's It's got high unemployment. There are many economic challenges generated by um, fallout from the pandemic, unstable oil price, crippling war in Yemen, a massive youth population. So, you know, that there there is a threat, but I, I think it's reasonably well managed. Now, the defeat of America in Afghanistan, uh, and, and you make the point in your paper that the AQAP leadership gloated on it, um, how concerned should the West be about renewed terror attacks by al-Qaeda? Mm, it, you know, al- al-Qaeda is degraded, fragmented, and lacks high caliber leaders, but its ambition is still there. So the threat to the West is still there. Um, And we have to be really careful of taking our eye off the ball. We've been here so many times before thinking it was defeated and then it wasn't and then it sprang back. So I I don't think currently they're in a, a, a great position to command and control attacks in the West, but, but they can certainly still inspire. And, we were reminded of that with the Pensacola naval base shooting at the end of December 2019. You know, this was a this was a Saudi shooter that um, targeted U.S. Uh, military personnel and had direct links to Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And actually, even just earlier this year, the leader of Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, whom everyone had imagined was captured, according to a United Nations report, he had been reported captured, appeared in a video called America and the Painful Seizure, gloating over the storming of the US Capitol. Uh, And Al-Qaeda revived its Inspire Guide just this summer, trying to trying to encourage attacks inside the West. Inspire, that's uh, Al-Qaeda's English language online magazine. That's right. That's right. So the ambition is still there. France is also a target, not just America. The republication of the Charlie Hebdo so-called insults of the Prophet Muhammad has sparked new antagonism. And uh, Israel, of course, also a target, UAE, Saudi governments. If I had to pick two things to watch out for, I think one of them would be a maritime attack off the coast of Yemen. And and the reason for that is it, it Maritime attacks provide an international target without the need to travel abroad. And Yemen's coastline is 
it's almost 2,000 kilometres long and it's notoriously difficult to police. And of course, Al-Qaeda has good experience of this. They targeted uh, the USS The Sullivans and the USS Cole in 2000 and a French oil tanker in 2002. And we've been seeing quite a few poems and anashid, these anthems that, that recently that praise the Cole attack. It's still in their minds and they vow fresh attacks. And of course, Al-Qaeda very well knows the benefits of such an attack. You know, raise insurance premiums, spike the oil price, generate a, a media storm and create economic volatility. It, it, it's, it's high up there, I think. And then the second thing to pick would be, would be Afghanistan. This could end up, this debacle in Afghanistan could end up, despite what the Taliban say, giving a new lease of life to Al-Qaeda, Afghanistan. They're clearly very pleased with the dawn of a, what they consider to be a new era of jihad. And we've already seen poems and anthems praising the Taliban. And uh, I think although this could provide a space for them to train, to regroup, or maybe just to lie low, it is worth pointing out, you know, there's one big difference between now and 20 years ago. And that's it. Unlike 20 years ago, this time around in Afghanistan, we are watching for this. Uh, we're not completely oblivious of it. Liz, uh, we began with Yemen, so let us end there. In your paper, you wrote, Yemen has all the ingredients for AQAP to rise again. A fragmenting state, poor governance, marginalized regions, the proliferation of armed groups, a collapsing economy, a generation of poorly educated youth, corrupt elites, and an angry and impoverished society polarized by war. All of that remains emphatically the case. The war still has no end in sight. So is it inevitable that Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula will rise again? Well, with that long list of ills, it, it does seem rather inevitable, doesn't it? But I'm always wary of ironclad terms like inevitable. So rather than inevitable, it's a real possibility. And this is no time for complacency. I would say we, you know, we've been here before 2012, 2016. It looked like Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula was defeated and it turned out it wasn't. So I think we just need to bear in mind that this kind of extremist ideology never actually disappears. Certainly not for good. It, it might go underground, it might evolve, it might change, it might be called something different. But ultimately, it, it can only ever be managed, not erased. And there are perhaps two things to worry about. One is that the splinters and fragments that make Al-Qaeda so weak now also mean that it, they're difficult to monitor and that they're forced into making different kinds of alliances. Different splinters have no option but to make alliances to, to survive, to, to endure. Uh, and that makes them much more difficult to define. Who is Al-Qaeda? What is it now? It's been blending into more mainstream militias in some areas. Uh, and so it's actually quite tough to distinguish between militant jihadi groups and, and say, political militancy. Some of their aims overlap. Uh, so so that's, that's a real challenge. And then the second real challenge will be peace. If peace is brokered in Yemen, it had better be representative. Because if it's not, then there will be 
significant pockets of disillusioned, excluded, disappointed people. And we know that Al-Qaeda has a strong record of identifying these kinds of local grievances and, and weaving them in to its narrative of global jihad. So it looks like it's over, but it isn't. And, uh, and you raise a very good point, and that is uh, a military response can't just be the only response, that there has to be more than just uh, the, the drone takeouts and the bombings of, of camps and that sort of, that sort of thing. Yes, that is a very important point. Uh, in fact, we could, we could learn from Al-Qaeda's own strategy. The way it won toleration was by a roster of community development works. And I think ultimately, you can't kill ideas, but you can kill the drivers of extremism by removing them, by investing in populations by giving people hope, aspirations, by taking away the reasons why they would feel the need to, to join, to join forces with Al-Qaeda. So it's important not to wait until the war is, is over and solved to invest in and build and bolster Yemeni communities. It needs to, it needs to happen now. It needs to happen much more broadly now. Mm, yeah, and, and very urgently. Uh, Liz, thank you so much. You're incredibly welcome. Thank you for, for your interest in, in Yemen and, and in my work. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Dr. Elizabeth Kendall. Her article, The Jihadi Threat in the Arabian Peninsula, has just been published in CTC Sentinel, West Point's Combating Terrorism Center journal. You can find that article on the CTC Sentinel website, and it's well worth a read. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.